Hello everybody and welcome to Into the Prey, breaching the chaos of the church with Nick and Mary Franks. Welcome to the first podcast in quite a while. It's been a busy old season as most regular listeners of this podcast will be aware with writing commitments, publishing commitments, that kind of thing. And you'll be glad to know that the new book that I'll be giving information about in the next couple of weeks um, is now with the printer and we're going through the final proof stages with all the other details being ironed out so please be aware of that it's a significant book I think it's autobiographical in some ways from the last very significant three years in world and church history but it's also um, a labor of love in many other ways and I'm deliberately not giving details at the minute because I don't want it to be premature but trust me when I say that the that the book is um it's the best work I think I've ever done, and um, I'm hoping that it's going to be, therefore, the most fruitful bit of work that I've ever done. And I'd encourage you to look out for it. In the next couple of weeks, I'll drop a MailChimp out. It will be available on the podcast as an audio book. It will be available as an ebook and a paperback. And Lord willing, it will be available as a hardback as well. Just a personal um, ambition, I suppose, that I have is to get it into a really nice hardback version now, on that, if you would like to help us with these publishing costs and commitments, then I encourage you to check out the link in the show notes, which will take you now straight through to our giving page. We're not doing Patreon anymore for various different reasons. We are um, very keen to be developing meaningful connections with people. Now, that's not always something that people want to do, which we understand. And so, therefore, if you'd like to give and help donate towards this publishing uh, work, which will happen, Lord willing, irrespective of whether or not you can give. But if you would be willing to, able to, maybe know some people that would like to get behind some pioneering prophetic work that is born really out of blood, sweat and tears and the travail and anguish of weeping, um, please do get in touch or forward this podcast onto someone else. The audio that you're about to hear now is the message that I gave at a church just last Sunday in London a good friend of mine, Josh, who leads a fantastic community there. And it's fantastic, not because of any merit of himself or themselves, but because there's a sense of the Holy Spirit being embraced and not resisted. And therefore, radical things happen. And that's the context that the audio that you're about to hear, it's not the live audio, this is the the, I suppose, the re-recorded audio that I've done this week. You can also see the video of it if you want to see the on-screen um, details that I've put up, but the the message is called The Children, The Deception, and The Dishonor, and you'll need your Bibles, you'll need a notepad, you'll need a pen, and we're going to be looking now for the next 45 minutes or so in the Book of Lamentations, the unique book of Lamentations that provides an eyewitness account of what it would be like, what it is, and what it was like, and what it will be like again to live through what the Bible consistently calls as the divine act of judgment of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Thank you everybody for listening. It's a privilege and honour to be able to host this podcast in an ongoing way. If you'd like to support and get behind what we're doing, either in this podcast form or in publishing work or over on YouTube with the videos, the extensive 
kind of growing library of videos there, please do drop us a line. We'd love to get in touch. If you want any more information, please do let us know and we can get that over to you. But there's lots of information. It's pretty obvious what we're doing and we would deeply, profoundly value your support. We're not part of a wider network of churches. We're not part of a wider denomination. We are literally solo. And so if you appreciate this work or if you know others that might, please do drop us a line and, as I say, see the link in the show notes. When you have occasion to get on an aeroplane and make a trip in the air, I wonder what your favourite part of the flight is. For me, it's when the plane begins to land and you're up above the clouds and then suddenly you feel the cabin shift to a downward trajectory and you look out the window and you begin to see the clouds that you'd been over getting nearer. And as you get nearer to the clouds you have a greater sense of the speed of the aeroplane. And then you get into the clouds. And you remain within the clouds until the aeroplane comes through the bottom and suddenly you're back on planet Earth. Why do I say that? Well, the passage that I want us to look at today from Lamentations 2 Part of the section of chapter two is entitled or at least subtitled in the ESV as God places Jerusalem under a cloud. Over the last two or three years in world and church history, I believe that the church's posture and trajectory has been demonstrably proven to be unfaithful. The church haven't changed their posture towards something that could even begin to resemble national repentance. And therefore, with a proud, upright, arrogant posture, the trajectory of the church has remained what it has been for a long time. The posture of the church is unfaithful. The trajectory, therefore, of the church is unfaithful. And that's why I say that we are under a cloud. When you're on a plane and you rise to whatever feet it is above the clouds, it's the nearest, I think it's the nearest you'll get to glory, this side of heaven. You can be like I was just the other day, flying down to London. You can be thousands of feet above the surface of the earth, above all of the cloud systems, and you can watch the sun rise and you can see cascading cumulus clouds off into eternity and you can see the light rise and ripple off all of the what look like cotton wool peaks and troughs and it's as though it's another day and then we started to descend through the cloud and as I say, you see the speed of the plane going because the clouds suddenly you, you're kind of aware, unaware of the speed that you'd been going at. And then you enter into the cloud. And you might have thought that you might have been through that cloud system in just a few seconds. But on this occasion recently, I was we were in the cloud for some minutes before we then reemerged into a grey, one-dimensional 
sullen, depressing, dark, oppressive, depressing, anxious. All of these negative, this is the stark reality of when God places his people. And that's what we're going to see in Lamentations 2. That's exactly what we're going to see. Where God places his people under a cloud because their posture and because therefore their trajectory was unfaithful. The church today, I think, is a in a similar position that the city of Jerusalem were in 586 before Christ BC. What we're about to see in this unique book of Lamentations are eyewitness accounts of those who'd been in the city. But thinking of posture and trajectory, let me just tell you this. In Matthew 24, 12, a verse that we should all know well, in the Olivet Discourse, in Jesus' own words, he says that the love of most or the love of many will grow cold. The Amplified Version says that the love of most will grow cold. Therefore, two things here. One, you can take from that that the love of a few will be hot. That's Jesus' statement in reverse. But also, don't overlook that Jesus used the word grow, which is why I'm emphasizing here posture and trajectory. Grow cold. The church doesn't just wake up apostate overnight. Christian disciples don't backslide necessarily overnight. Listen to this. If you fall into water with temperature of between 16 and 21 degrees Celsius, Celsius, you may die after two to 40 hours. There's quite, quite a wide range of possibilities there. If you fall into water, however, that is 10 to 16 degrees Celsius, that becomes much narrower to one to six hours that you would be likely to survive. If the water was four to 10 degrees Celsius, it's narrower still between just one and three hours. If you fell into water between one and four degrees Celsius, you would have about the same amount of time as it would take to watch a Friday night movie, half an hour to 90 minutes. But if you fell into water that was freezing or a fraction above, you would have merely 15 to 45 minutes before you died. Jesus says that the love of most will grow cold. It's a process. And so therefore, depending on the context in which you find yourself today, is your church faithful the trajectory towards death may be as short as 15 minutes. It's an analogy here to make the point that none of us have tomorrow. None of us have a guarantee of tomorrow. And it is profoundly foolish to remain within an unfaithful church with Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 12 ringing in your ear, that in the end times, and I don't believe that is just in the moment immediately preceding his appearing, but I believe it's the years and if not decades running up to that. I'm going to say something about the significance of national repentance in a minute that relates with that process. 
The question, therefore, is what constitutes a faithful church? What makes a church faithful or unfaithful? If you've not read my open letter to the church, assessing our church's faithfulness based on 2 Timothy, I would encourage you to read it. I want to say here, before we get into our passage, Lamentations 2, verses 11 to 19, that I'll read for you. I want to say something about eschatology, because what we're about to read in this book of Lamentations is unique in the whole of the Bible. And eschatology, i.e. the study of the last things or the end times, how how we view this passage eschatologically will affect, I think, our understanding of the, the authorial intent. What did the author intend? And indeed, what does God intend as the one who inspired the author? The author is most likely to be Jeremiah, although not conclusively. We don't know that for sure, so keep that in mind. A quick passing word on eschatology, because this passage deals with the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Depending on how you view the passage that I've just referred to in Matthew 24, some Christians believe that everything in Matthew 24 has already happened, for example. And I believe that's profoundly wrong. Myself and Mary would have currently, and I say currently because we don't claim infallibility, and I do think that this issue of eschatology will become clearer as the day draws nearer. For example, if you're a post-millennialist and your trajectory that you think the church is going to get better and better and better, I think if that's wrong, that will become clearer, and I think it will become clearer quite soon, relatively soon, and therefore I would expect there to be from good people statements, letters, videos of repentance. But let me just say this, because I believe in historical premillennialism. What does that mean? I'm not going to go into all of that now, but I just simply put means that when you read Matthew, or read, talk about, discuss Matthew 24, and you consider the fall of Jerusalem that Jesus talks about, or, or indeed other details, this, I believe, is the faithful, most compelling way to view things from an eschatological point of view. It's, it's a contribution by somebody called George Eldon Ladd, G.E. Ladd. And I want to just quote this to you. I submit this to you for your consideration. By the way, we're not talking about dispensational premillennialism, rapture at any moment, you know, so on and so forth, and the kind of distinguishing elements of what make dispensational premillennialism what it is two stages of a second coming that kind of thing don't believe in that as a very they're very different pre they're very premillennialism is that you know you can have historical and you can have dispensational and those two are very different we've done podcasts on that in recent months for your consideration but listen to ge lad here and then we'll get into the lamentations text lad says from the totality of Jesus' teaching, one thing is clear. Jesus spoke both of the fall of Jerusalem and of his own eschatological parousia. That means the second coming, his appearing. Lad goes on to say, Jesus viewed the historical and the eschatological as being mingled. I'll say that again. Jesus viewed the historical 
and the eschatological as being mingled and that the final eschatological event is seen through the transparency of the immediate historical. I've put that on the screen for you because it is quite wordy, but it's a profoundly helpful paragraph that I would commend to you as, in effect, being a summary of correct eschatology, which, in other words, is this, that when we read eschatological passages like Matthew 24, and Jesus refers to the fall of Jerusalem as just one detail of that, that that can, in a prophetic perspective, what Ladd describes as being mingled, the historical, the present, and the future being mingled, is that the Bible can be referring to that which is past as well as that which is both present and future. This is what this is what lad is meaning by mingled. So in other words, when I read Matthew 24 and Jesus is referring to the fall of Jerusalem, I have no problem and I don't think you should have any problem at all in understanding that to mean the fall of Jerusalem in 586, which is the context of Lamentations 2 that we're coming to, as well as the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 under Rome, as well as the the eventual and final fall of Jerusalem in the immediate pretext to Jesus returning. In other words, it's both and. And so it's important to say that because when then we come to Lamentations now, and the distinct feature of Lamentations as a collection of five poems written kind of like a funereal dirge melancholic type uh, expression of lament is that the writer is giving us a unique insight into what it would be like to live through, what it was like to live through one of the judgments that the Lord, through the word, is referring to constantly as the day of the Lord. Let me just say this in passing that the ESV makes quite an unhelpful comment in its study notes because it's a bit unclear. What they claim is that the book of Lamentations is the only book in the Bible that is written by somebody who has personally lived through one of the days of judgment. So in other words, one of the acts of judgment the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And it's unhelpful. It piques my interest, but it's unhelpful because, of course, then... If the writer is Jeremiah, or even if it's not, what about the book of Jeremiah? Surely that's written and in the same time as the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So the issue is this, is what is actually unique about Lamentations? And assuming that Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations, I think this is what the ESV is saying. I think the ESV is making a disti- is distinguishing between Jeremiah, which was actually dictated by Jeremiah to Baruch, as opposed to Lamentations that I think is written by Jeremiah. And so if you think of the Gospels being written by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John as eyewitness accounts of the glories of Jesus Christ and what a window that is into that period of history, similarly, as we read Lamentations, it is a, in effect, a gospel of 
a man who lived through the day of the Lord or something that prefigured in that mingled sense that G.E. Ladd speaks of, the day of the Lord in 586, the day of the Lord in AD 70, speaking of and giving us glimpses into the final day of the Lord when Jesus comes and appears in the sky. So it's, it's important to understand that. I'm going to say something about this at the end, about John Piper's new book, Come Lord Jesus, as my kind of main critique of it. But this is one of the paragraphs from that book that relates to what I've just said. Piper says, if we realize that the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension on the one hand and the parousia, the second coming on the other, belong essentially together and are in a real sense one event, one divine act being held apart only by the mercy of God who desires to give men opportunity for faith and repentance then we can see that in a very real sense, the latter is always imminent now that the former has happened. It was and still is true to say that the parousia, the second coming, is at hand. And indeed this, so far from being an embarrassing mistake on the part of Jesus or the early church, is an essential part of the church's faith. Ever since the incarnation, men have been living in the last days. Piper describes that in his book as spiritual insanity or spiritual suicide to not be faithful to 2 Timothy 4.8, which is the linchpin of the entire book, which is to say that you and I, all of us, every church should be loving his appearing. And unfortunately, tragically, bewilderingly, that is not true. Most churches do not love his appearing because loving his appearing means more than some kind of theoretical or theological agreement that we believe that he will one day come. That's not what loving his appearing means. I'll say more about that at the end. So Jerusalem falling, that's the context of Lamentations 2 that we're going to turn to now. Jerusalem in 586 BC, Jerusalem in AD 70 and Jerusalem in TBC to be confirmed one day perhaps not too far from today. So let's turn to this much neglected book of Lamentations and to the second chapter. This is the outline I'll put up on the screen so you can see this outline of the book, five chapters or five poems if you think of it like that. And, and you can see there the five outlined sections, how lovely sits the city, sorry, how lonely sits the city, it will indeed one day be lovely again. God has set Zion under a cloud. There you go. That's what I was just referring to. That's what I believe is true of the church right now. The posture and trajectory of the church currently is akin to coming down from the glories above the clouds in the sky in a plane to the depressing grayness of what is effectively God's judgment on his unfaithful people. That's where I believe we're at. We'll come back to that in a second. Thirdly, I am the man who has seen affliction. We know chapter three, mostly for the for the verses that talk about the, the Lord's mercy being new every morning. Fourthly, how, how the gold has grown dim. And then finally, restore us to yourself, O Lord. I'm asking the question today, why do we need to cry out? Why do we, why do you, why do I, why do we as the people of God on a national level 
Why do we need to cry out? And I'm going to answer that now as quickly as I can. There are at least three reasons, and we see them in these verses. Lamentations 2, verses 11 through to 19. So let's turn to them now. So don't forget these verses. This little our passage for today is in the second chapter of Lamentations, or the second poem, and that section dealing with our being under a cloud and therefore why we need to cry out. Let's read these verses together and consider these three reasons as to why we need to cry out. And if you're not, your posture and your trajectory is towards something like hypothermia in a frozen sea. Verse 11 of Lamentations 2. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground. Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is vast as the sea? Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, This is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise. Cry out in the night and at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. I want to just say here, look at this. In uh, firstly in chapter one, which is obviously not our passage today. Second half of verse 21 of chapter 1. You have brought the day you announced. You have brought the day you announced. Remember what I was just saying about GE Lad and the mingled present historical future. You have brought the day. He, he has brought the day. He will bring the day. We're dealing here with graphic eyewitness detail of what it would be like, what it was like to live through the day of the Lord in 586 BC. 
something like we'll be again in Jerusalem surrounded by the nations. All roads, so to speak, lead to Jerusalem. And as we've just read in our passage now, verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has brought his day of judgment and he will bring his day of judgment. Why should we cry out to the Lord? Why do we need to do that? Three reasons. Firstly, in verses 11 and 12, because of the children. We don't have children, Marion. Mary and I don't have children and we may ne- never have children. But for the love of God, for the glory of God, we must alter our postures as the church so as to cry out to God for mercy for the children. Verse 11 and 12, my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the infants and babies faint. Jeremiah, if it was Jeremiah writing this, and which is consistent with Jeremiah as a book for lots of reasons I don't have time to go into now, is saying that such was the reality of living in Jerusalem at the point at which it was flawed because of the judgment of God and because of the unfaithfulness of the covenant people of God. He was sick. Even the detail of bile would suggest to me it was just a recurring, repetitive, appalling vomiting to the point where your stomach's empty and there's nothing but bile to be poured out onto the ground. Can you imagine being on the earth? As Jesus said in Luke 21, which is a parallel passage to Matthew 24, that people will be fainting on the earth such for fear. People will be fainting because of fear. Such is what's coming on the earth when Jesus returns. And this is what we're seeing here. Such is the reality of the unfaithfulness of the people of God and the judgment of God as a direct consequence and result that children are fainting in the street. We'll read in a minute that mothers are eating their children. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Just a week or two weeks ago, a couple in... Great Britain were arrested and basically um, prosecuted with manslaughter for for their gross neglect of a newborn baby that they just left in the woods. This wickedness, this simmering of lawlessness is already at work, though the man of lawlessness himself has not yet been revealed, which needs to happen before Christ will come. But the point is lawlessness, that kind of wicked, demonic evil is, is happening right now. You might say, well, there's nothing new about newborn babies being killed. Well, that's true in one sense. But when you hear about newborn babies being left like a plastic bottle or a bit of rubbish, in some, it's wickedness. This is the judgment of God. And it's not. it's not only... Cases like that, is it? We know we know that 4,000 babies are aborted every week in this country, in the UK. We know that 2021 was the most 
appalling year of abortion in world history. Do you know how many babies were slaughtered in their mother's wombs in 2021? 215,000 almost. As I said to a church over the weekend, I'm willing to speak and allow a sense of awkwardness to fall in a room so that people wrestle with this. How dare we hear these statistics or perhaps don't even know the statistics and then don't cry out to God, becoming somehow accustomed or used to these types of appalling figures. 215,000 children, babies. Why do we need to cry out to God? For the children. Verse 12, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Let me just say this in passing. I think this is more than just a literal record of what happened in 586 and AD 70 and what will happen again in Jerusalem, a date to be confirmed. I believe it's also an interpretive or symbolic level talking about children who have no spiritual bread and wine. Children who were born into a system, a church landscape, in which really there is a famine of the word of the Lord. Denominational polarities just reduce to agree to disagree, but that the net result of that is that our children are born into a spiritual stroke church landscape which is akin to being on the streets of Jerusalem in 586 BC, where there was no food, there was no drink, there was no wine. What ba- babies and children don't drink wine, do they? I suppose unless they're desperate. So I think there's an interpretive level here where we, excuse me, like in John 10, Jesus is the bread of life. Can we consider, and again, this would be a consideration and a thought that might come if we change our posture that the trajectory of our own lives, what we've, what we've been born into, what our children have been born into, is profoundly lacking in bread and wine spiritually because we agree to disagree because one thing, one church says that, another church, we were out on the streets over the weekend, this, this absolute melting pot of all these different spiritual groups, most of whom are claiming something about Jesus and even so-called Christians who can't agree with what God says about God. Catholics, charismatic Catholics. There is a, there's a profound famine here that is beyond the merely physical. Can you relate with Jeremiah's tears? That's what I'm asking us to consider. Why, do we, why should we call out to God? Why must we cry out with literal tears? If you can't relate with that, there's something wrong, guys. He was, Jeremiah was sufficiently distraught to be vomiting. Can you imagine that? Have a quick look at this picture. This is an impression of 
an artist whose name I forget, but I'll put it on the screen. The day of the Lord. Look at the way the top. Can you imagine? This is the Luke 21 verse where Jesus says that people are going to faint because of what's coming upon the earth. This is the day of the Lord. He's preparing us for realities that we currently are unable to stand through. And it is insanity. It is spiritual suicide to not prepare, to not alter our posture. Why should we call out to the Lord? Why do we need to cry out for the children? Secondly, because of deception. Verse 13 and 14, let's read it again. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may come for you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but they have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. English church pastors in recent times have prophesied about the glory of God. It's time to bring the glory of God back to the church or somehow bringing a word of prophecy to the UK church without any reference to repentance, lamenting, tears, altering our posture, being sobered, nothing. And you always should be slow to say that something or someone is false. You know, there's a big difference between being mistaken and being knowingly, consciously false. But this is the word of the Lord and the standard as per Hosea 7 verse 1 where Hosea writes of God, when God would heal his people, Ephraim, Israel, Jerusalem, us, the church, his covenant people. When God would heal Ephraim, read the word of God. What does it say? That the prophet or the prophecy reveals iniquity. God reveals an iniquity in order to heal his people. This is exactly what we're seeing here. Verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. What's the qualifier here of what is false and what is true prophecy and therefore false and true prophets? They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have instead prophesied peace, peace, all will be well. It's time to bring the glory of God back to the church. We've done COVID. We've done lockdown. It's time to bring the glory of God back to the church because that's how proud and arrogant we are to think that we could do that without even stopping for a moment to ask the question, why is it that the glory has left? This is not a different perspective. This is not a different perception point of view. This is the difference between that which is prophetically false and that which is what it says. They have not exposed your iniquity. The false prophets did not expose iniquity. They didn't call to repent. They didn't expose the error so as to provoke repentance. But they have seen for you, this is irony, this is literary irony, they've not seen anything. They've seen for you oracles 
that are false and misleading. When the church is being told it's time to bring the glory of God back to the church, all the while there is zero reference to lament, repentance, posture. You're being deceived. This is deception. Why do we need to cry out? We need to cry out because the children are being slaughtered on an industrial scale, all the while the church say nothing about it. Welby, any other prominent church leader across all the denominations, say nothing about it. Why do we need to cry out to God? There's, there's one reason. Another reason is the deception, doctrinal, theological, smorgasbord, deception. Word of God and spirit of God and mission of God all separated because we've been born into a system where we don't know any different. Children fainting for lack of bread and wine. The prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions, and that's going on today, and I believe will increase. And will take out a multitude of people if you are not discerning, if you're not changing your posture. Why do we need to cry out to God? Because of the children, because of deception. And finally, just today, and this is at least three reasons, this is not the only reasons, the chaos of the church. In other words, and ultimately all to do with the dishonor to God. Why do we need to cry out to God? I abhor my inheritance, God said, for those who would slaughter children. The false the deception of, of dis, false prophecy, all of that is ultimately a dishonor, number three, of God himself. Where the people of God, the covenant people of God should be glorifying him, they are dishonoring him. Look at this in verse 15. All who pass by along the way, clap their hands. This is the mocking of the enemy, mocking of Satan. Clapping their hands at you, they hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? Is this as, is this as good as it gets, Yahweh? Is this, is this what you died for, Jesus? This is what the Bible's saying. We must cry out to God because of the children, because of deception, the deception of the covenant people of God. And we must cry out to God because of the dishonor that all of that is to him. Therefore, what is the only appropriate response? Well, I believe we're at a watershed. God did wonderful things, engineered, orchestrated, providentially wonderful things to make this posture change as relatively easy as possible for you not to go back to your unfaithful church. How many people? Maybe get in touch, let us know. I'm sure there are, I hope and pray that there are more than we might think there are who haven't just continued with what was going on before the world changed, before the Lord held a mirror up against our current condition. It's a watershed. And the only response is that we cry out to him. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he... And this is, sorry, this is verse uh, chapter one. Do you remember what I was saying earlier? The Lord has done what he purposed. The day of the Lord has come and it's going to come again. Make no mistake. The watershed posture change is to do with what I was saying earlier about Piper's book and 2 Timothy 4.8 that his book was written for, for all those who would love his appearing. In the verse after, I think it's in verse 18 of 2 Timothy 4, Paul refers to Demas, who was in a sense the archetype, personification of the unfaithful church or unfaithful Jerusalem. 
Why? Because he loved this life more than the appearing of Jesus. He abandoned the church. He abandoned his brothers. He was apostate. The love of Demas grew cold. Deathly hypothermic, cold. This is the great and idolatrous fall of Revelation 2. The church in Ephesus, as good as they were in some respects, they forgot the first love, didn't they? That was what Jesus said to them. And this terrible fall that we see, if you read the book of Lamentations, it's a terrible fall. That's how the book describes it. It's terrible. As was the church in Ephesus who had forgotten their first love. And I think you can say from that, forgotten the love of his appearing. When Piper, who I agree with 99.9% and love and respect, and I can say this with respect and honor, that I don't agree with the end of the book. Summarized as just, well, guys, we need to beware the Thessalonian attitude of just being idle and not working. And so Piper is like, well, the answer, therefore, is just to go to go to work, unlike the Thessalonians, and go to church. This is my question. If your church or the churches that might be near to where you live don't love his appearing, why would you go to church? This is how it ends up that children are fainting in the streets because they think that being a Christian disciple means doing this, this and this, but no fundamental loving of his appearing. And what do I mean by that? I'm not meaning just an agreement with that. I'm, I'm meaning that you genuinely would rather die and be with Christ. For I no longer live, is in Galatians 2, but what does Paul say in Philippians 1? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what it means to love his appearing. Being convinced of the reason why you would remain for the fruitfulness and upbuilding of the church, but that you fundamentally, there is no comparison here between this earth under the clouds and the glory of what it would be like to be with Jesus. So my question that Piper is not even asked in his book, why is it? How is it that at a systemic level, the church do not love his appearing. That's what it means to be unfaithful. That's what results in Jerusalem being floored by Babylon. That's what it looks like for the church to be irrelevant, impotent, and manifestly unfaithful. He's brought the day that he announced, and he's going to bring the day that he announced. The response is in verse 18 and 19. Their heart cried to the Lord. This is what happens when the posture changes, when the scales fall, when the heart is cut and you hear the Spirit of God. Verse 18 and 19 should be true of Lamentations 2, should be true of every church. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, the figurative, the spiritual night, the night that is that no one is doing this, the night that is that no one really wants that Jesus to come more than this life now. 
That's night. Cry out in the night. Cry out. Whatever context you're in, if you're not in a community that's getting this, then read read my letter, please, and relates to 2 Timothy. And if you can genuinely see a change or a hope or possibility, perhaps you would be called to stay there. But other than that, no. And even then, that's a high risk for you to remain in a place in the hope, constant hope, that there's going to be this shift Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands. This is this is the worship of Jeremiah. Thrown to the bottom of a well and left for dead. Weeping prophets. And I say, let the tears fall. What a gift that it is. Beware the prophets. Beware the prophecy that's followed by applause. Our vision for radical upheaval in the church is woefully lacking. When these poems were used for public repentance following the flooring of Jerusalem in 586, this is really important, I'll finish with this. These same five poems were still being used 66 years later when the temple was rebuilt under Zechariah. 66 years later. Today we talk about a day of repentance for six million babies slaughtered. The very worst contradiction in terms, a day of repentance Our concept and understanding of national repentance is woefully extra. It's not even even remotely biblical. Our vision for radical upheaval is non-existent. We must think for the sake of the children and their children, even if, like Mary and I, you don't have children, think generationally. Assume that this isn't going to be when the Lord returns, but that what's going on now is foundationally tilling the soil, uprooting the intimidating rottenness of all that's gone on for centuries. We might be here when he comes, but it's unlikely. The world are not going to be prepared for the return of Christ until the church are prepared And what will that preparation require? Well, this is an analogy to finish. Imagine a husband who went away out of necessity for a long time, leaving his wife behind. Imagine the husband writing often. Remember, he's gone away out of necessity, not because he doesn't love his wife or because he's being neglectful. He's gone away out of necessity. And it's seen by the husband writing often, sending his news and affection. Imagine the wife... In response, never replying, never acknowledging, never initiating to maintain the strained marriage relationship. The love of most will grow cold. That wife didn't love the appearing of her husband. Would the wife's behavior convey love and respect and honor? For the husband, would the wife be regarded as faithful? No, she would be regarded as 
apathetic, neglectful, abusive, and ultimately unfaithful. Why have we not loved his appearing? Because we are unfaithful and we must repent. Imagine what would be required for this marriage to be reconciled. There would be need for repentance, remorse, apology, and recommitment. This is what is going to happen before he comes. Why have we not loved his appearing? I don't think we know. I don't think our fathers knew or theirs. The context of repentance in the scriptures, as we've seen, is often centuries long. Hosea wrote, I think, about 200 years before this lament. And even then, God was saying that when he would heal his people, he reveals iniquity. When lamentations were used at the rebuilding of the temple under Zechariah, 66 years later, and I've said publicly and I'm saying again even more strongly that God could conceivably lead this nation and the nations of the West through at least 40 years of repentance. And we talk about a day of repentance. Why do we need to cry out to God? For the children, because the church are deceived and because ultimately God is dishonoured. We must cry out. We must cry out for tears and pray that the softening of our heart would result from them. Rejoice!